This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners, only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. If you're listening to this over on our regular For the Love podcast feed, welcome. You are getting a little sneak peek here into every awesome thing we do behind the scenes at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club. By the way, would absolutely love to have you join us. You will love it. That is a literally a guarantee. You can find out more at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We absolutely have your seat reserved. So come on in. So you guys know, book club, that you, this community, this space means the world to me. It's brought me so much joy. And I love seeing it in this community, in your stories too. You shock me every month with your absolutely thoughtful and meaningful and interesting conversations in our group. I'm so, I'll just forever be grateful for it. And this month in particular, the chat went crazy. You guys had a lot of fun reading this book and so much to say and so much to share with each other. And I love it. I loved seeing it. Obviously this month we read The Vanishing Half 
by Britt Bennett. And it's just extraordinary, right? In every single way. Now, in case you didn't know, Britt graduated from Stanford and later earned her MFA in fiction at the University of Michigan. And so prior to writing The Vanishing Half, her novel, The Mothers, was a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for both the NBCC John Leonard First Novel Prize and Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction. And then her next book, Ours, the one we're reading, The Vanishing Half, was published in 2020 and just took the literary community by storm. It really did. It was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. It won, honestly, countless awards. I can't even list them. And was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times. I mean, that is just the rarest air, right? And also no big deal. It was also on the short list of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2020. So not only is Brit an astonishing novelist, she's also an essayist. Her work has been featured in just kind of everywhere. The New Yorker, the New York Times Magazine, Paris Review. She's been named a National Book Foundation Under 35 honoree, an NAACP Image Award finalist, and also one of Time's Next 100 Influential People. (laughs) I mean, she's smart. She's interesting. I love to hear her talk about her writing process about her character development, about what she chooses to leave in and where she exercises restraint. You know, that is endlessly fascinating to me when I get to interview novelists is how they got to where they are. And I think she makes every smart choice available to her. And we talk about it all. You girls asked some really good questions this month. And so I think I asked her five or six of y'all's questions in this interview, which she answered really, really thoughtfully. And I don't know. It's just, we're getting to see inside the brilliant mind of the person who created all these characters and this innovative storyline, which is kind of different from anything we've ever read. And anyway, this is my second time to interview Britt. I had her on last year on the For the Love podcast, just kind of as a woman of excellence. And I think I told y'all when I read The Vanishing Half, I, I immediately said, I need this book in book club. We want this. And so we finally got it in here. And I appreciate you being such smart readers for loving it and appreciating it and asking really interesting analytical questions about the book, which I brought to her. And she was like, oh, smart. So anyway, I'm so happy to have her time yet again. We're so lucky to have her. It's my absolute delight to welcome the absolutely wonderful Britt Bennett to the show. Okay. I am so happy to see you again, Brett. Like, welcome, welcome. Let me tell you that I read The Vanishing Half last year and my book club team will tell you that I sent out an email and I'm like, I want this book in book club immediately. And so we've pulled every lever and every string to finally get it in book club. And it's so good. So mad at you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being such a good writer. Thank you for stewarding your smart brain and turning it into novels. Our book club loves this one. We're only halfway through it. It's our February selection. And so we're kind of halfway through the month, except that most people are just zipping through it. It's, you know, you can't put this down. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Give us a little update very quickly on like where you are and how you are and the people around you and everything about, because I talked to you, you were on the, for the love podcast last year. And so I haven't talked to you since. So I would just love a quick little 35,000 foot view on all things Brit Bennett. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for picking the book for the book club. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm doing fine. I'm in New York right now. I'm starting to travel a little bit more. So I just got back from Minnesota yesterday. Yikes. 
yeah, it was so, I mean, unthinkable. How do they live there? How do they live there? Honestly, I was like, this is violent. Like, I just couldn't believe (laughs) it. violent. I could not believe it. It was like, I woke up and the check the weather app and it said, oh, it's negative six degrees, but it feels like negative 28. And I was just like, what does that, yeah, I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't even, you know, so. Yeah, that has um, no meaning. It had no meaning, but I got to see two of my really good friends. That was fun. And oh, it was a fun trip. Oh, I, it was at it work. It was a work trip that I tacked on a yeah. friend visit on the end. Yes, of it. Yes, so, yes, yes. so yes. So, but yeah, I started to do, I did an event there. I'm doing an event in Portland uh, coming up this week. So yeah. starting to get back out again. And it's nice to not be doing the zoom all day. It's nice to be out in the world, even though it, of course that can be draining to be on planes and all of that, but it's nice. I, I missed it. Yeah, totally. Let's talk about the vanishing half. I want to start with the title. I find titling both fascinating and frustrating. I don't know how you find it as a novelist. I'm always interested in how authors come to it. If did you start with it? Did it come to you later? Did you like pick it up out of the narrative and find it like just halfway through the the story? Or did you was that your beginning point? I definitely did not start with it. I always have a working title, but it's usually not. I mean, it's never been good enough to be the actual title. So I need people around me to help me find that. But, you know, I did. I didn't have this title in mind. It was my agent who came up with it. We had like a list going of my agent, editor, myself trying to find out what the title would be. And it's weird because this book has it's structured into different parts and all of those parts have titles. And that was easy to do. But when it came to the title for the whole book, I could not figure it out. So I was really glad that my my agent suggested this one. And I think it worked on a lot of different levels. It spoke to so many of the characters and their journeys, so many of the different thematics in the book. So I felt very fortunate to have someone around me who's who's good at that because it's definitely not something that comes naturally to me. Oh gosh, listen, I just have to, I'm either like very good at titling or I just murder it. Like I don't have an in-between of a, an absolute win or an absolute miss. What was one of your working titles that got put in the trash? Do you remember? My working tells was writing the book was just Mallard. And, you know, my, my editor was just like, that's going to be terrible for SEO. Like people are just going to find pictures of ducks when they're looking for this book. <laughs> so that was very clearly like, and very quickly a no from her, but that's what I was like, when I was saving it on my computer, I have all the files that are just like Mallard, you know, version, whatever. So I usually have a very kind of lazy working title. Um, sure. So I'm not surprised that they don't work for the, for the real book. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so that's why I'm glad I have people around me who are thinking about SEO, which of course I never am. So of it's good to have people around you think about those types of things. I'm happy you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about the plot. Okay, let's talk about Mallard. Because I just found the whole premise of, obviously the, t- the little town of Mallard, but the whole book, so interesting. It's so innovative. You know, this small Southern town of light-skinned Black people. It's just, I've never really seen that plot point. I've never seen that as kind of the background to an entire narrative. It's so interesting. How did you come up with this? I'm really curious, like, is this the place where the whole idea started, this idea, and then you seeded it out into a novel? Yeah, it started with the place, which is the first thing that's happened for me was starting uh, starting with setting. But it started with the town. It was, you know, my mom is from rural Louisiana and was telling me about this type, these types of communities that she knew of when she was growing up. And it was something that I didn't know a whole lot about either, had never really thought about. So as soon as she told me that, I knew that that was a setting for a novel. And then from there, I started to think about twins coming from that place and deciding to live their lives on opposite sides of the color line. 
Oh, so creative. Really just a fascinating story arc. So obviously we see Stella make the choice to pass as white for obvious reasons. It offers her security, comfort. It puts her in majority culture. There's a power and proximity piece to it. It's a privilege. And I thought about you writing Stella's story. And I wondered if it was hard for you to write it all. This idea that this person of color was is stripping herself of her race. And then, of course, creating a lot of mayhem on the other side of that, and a lot of confusion and pain and suffering. And as a novelist, who's you created her, you created the storyline. But I wonder if as a human, that was ever hard for you. Was that ever like a heavy lift? I mean, I think to some extent, because, you know, I, I have sisters, I have two older sisters. So to write a character making a choice where she's deciding voluntarily to never speak to her family again or to her sister again, that's something that I think is hard to imagine myself doing. But I think the harder thing was that I really felt like I knew that I had written a character who made a choice that some readers might find sort of hateable <laughs> and some readers would find really odious and offensive. So my job as a novelist is how do I make that choice understandable? I don't need to make you agree with her or think that you would make the same decision, but I just need to make you understand why she made that choice. And I think I went into it thinking people were going to really hate Stella. And a pleasant surprise has been that people, readers really haven't. I don't, I don't know that she's anybody's favorite. Nobody has told me that they loved her. But a lot of readers have come to either have mixed, complicated feelings about her or to just sort of understand why she does what she does. And I think that that's always what I was aiming at when I was writing this character. I love to hear you say that. And I think if that was your objective, you really nailed it because you didn't lead us too hard. You didn't make us feel a certain way, whatever you wanted, good or bad. But the way that you told this story on its face, though, of Stella, I found myself even at odds with my own self about her, like with moments of compassion rising up for her and understanding, under, understanding her, I guess, maybe not liking anything that she was doing, but kind of feeling like, well, this is the system that she is born into and she's kind of surviving in the way that she knows how to, or is able to. And I appreciate that as an, as a writer, you let us come to our own conclusions on that. Cause in the book club, we're kind of mixed on Stella. We don't all have the same opinion. I think that that seems to be the trend, I think overall of how people feel. So yeah, I mean, I think for me, she became most accessible for me when I started to just think about you know, I think everybody kind of fantasizes about the idea of just moving to some place where nobody knows you and starting over. And when I started to think of her decision in that respect, it really made sense to me of just this idea of somebody who's gone through a really painful upbringing and just wants a new life. She just wants to leave all of that behind. And even though that requires her to leave her family behind, she wants so desperately to kind of start over and that to me was something that I found really just kind of appealing and, and sympathetic. So yeah, I mean, I think as a writer, I, I don't care what, whether people like my characters or not, but I want them to make choices that feel understandable and that follow a certain type of emotional logic, where even if they're not making a rational decision, you understand why they made, why they felt like that was the decision that they needed to make. And I think that that to me was the biggest thing that I was thinking about with Stella was how do I make her choices understandable, even if the reader does not like them. So good. I love to hear how your brain works as you work out a story. This is the most interesting thing to me when I get to interview novelists is 
what you want for your characters, your approach to writing, you know, because some novelists give us the story is, is so flat on the paper. It's so predictable. And we feel exactly the way we almost have no choice but to feel, you know, there's they lead us too strong. And so I really always appreciate the restraint when a novelist is able to access that to let us feel some kind of way about a character that you dreamed up. I want to talk about the multi-generational piece of this story. It's to me, like one of the center spokes of the way I've, I've processed the entire story. I mean, we have Adele, of course, the girls, the twins, mom, and then we have, you know, Kennedy and Jude, the daughters. And it's just so you weave this together masterfully. Some of it, I really didn't see coming. I didn't expect some of it, most of it. It seems like you made a real choice to dive into this idea of mothers and how they impact the way that we live our lives. And in turn, how we end up impacting our children. I loved this piece of it. And this has been fodder for us in book club of a lot of conversation. I'd like to just hear you talk about your perspective here of the mothers in this book who became mothers, the daughters, and how everybody was impacted by each other. Yeah. I mean, I think I did not originally know that it was going to be intergenerational. I thought that the book would just be about the twins and kind of stop there. But as I wrote it, I mean, originally I became interested in Adele and the twins' mothers, who who in a lot of ways kind of represents the the value of Mallard. She's somebody who has sort of wholesale bought into this ideology and is, has tried to impress that onto her twin daughters, who both reject that ideology in completely different directions, but they both reject it in a sense. And then to see their children and their children moving even further from that ideology and further from their upbringing. So yeah, I became interested in the lives of their daughters and how different those girls are to each other. And the fact that they are genetically half siblings, but are such completely different people who are read in completely different ways. That became really fascinating to me. So yeah, I mean, I think this book is so much about a family that has been fractured and that has been broken in all these different ways. So once I realized that I wanted to go through those generations, I just kind of followed what was fascinating me. And a lot of that became you know, this idea that we inherit so much from our parents, but we can never fully understand them. And I think that's true of people who have parents in their lives. I mean, Kennedy has a mother in her life, sort of, but she's so uh, withholding that there's so much about her mother's life that she doesn't understand. And Jude is very close to her mother, but still is sort of inheriting things that her mother has experienced. So I became really interested, I think, in that as I realized that the book would be multi-generational. Did you know going into it the way that you were going to structure it or did that give itself to you as you started writing the story, kind of the back and forth, jumping from time to time to time? No, I did not know that. I went into it thinking it would be chronological. I thought it would be very straightforward. I don't know if you've read the book Silver Sparrow by Tiari Jones, but that's a book about sisters and one half of the book is one sister and the other half is the other sister. So I thought I would originally maybe do something like that. One half is Desiree, one half is Stella. That felt very straightforward. And then I started writing it and the book became so much more messy and unruly and unmanageable. So it became so much messier than that. It became this intergenerational story. I became interested in the men in the book. I became interested in moving around in time. And I went further in time than I thought I would do. I thought originally the book would just span, you know, a, the more contained timeline. But soon I was like in the in the 80s. <laughs> like it, but you know, I just like I just try to 
follow what's interesting to me. And I trust my editor and I trust that people will reel me in if it really goes off the rails. But I love that about novels. I love that novels can be these kind of messy, sprawling things. I love that they can have these detours and they can give you insight into some minor character and that you can just kind of go wherever is interesting. So that's what I eventually had to learn to do that I was trying to, I think, I think when I first started it, I was trying to contain it in a way that the book resisted being contained. So eventually I just sort of submitted to the madness. (laughs) And I think that, um, I think that things worked out. Yeah, it worked out. I mean, I can't imagine another way now that we've read it the way we've read it, but it made it so interesting, so interesting to follow. And it just gave a lot of depth to everybody's stories and all their relationships. I really like the choice that you made to include this sort of idea of performing in the book. I mean, both literally and figuratively, you know, we've got, of course, Kennedy, who's acting literally and blurring the line between who she is and her character. But then we kind of look at some of the other women in the, they're all kind of acting. Stella, particularly, obviously, her whole life seems to be like a performance of this sort of half version of who she is. Did you make that choice on purpose? Did you sort of do this through line of performing that was really, truly kind of metaphorical for the story? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I knew all of it going into it. I think I think I knew early on that Kennedy would be an actor and that that would explore this idea of her feeling more like herself when she's playing somebody else and her kind of questioning what's real and authentic about her life, which of course later kind of spawns into or factors into her own life when she's starting to learn things about her family. But then I also thought about, like you said, Stella being, it's almost performance art because people who are, other people are participating in it, but they don't know that they are and they're not, they're not really consenting to it, but they're part of the performance, whether they want to be or not. And I think for Stella, I became really interested in this question of what it means when the performance becomes realer than real life, when you become so like subsumed in the performance that that is your reality. I eventually began to think of passing as sort of death faking and read a book about faking your death. And one of the interesting things in it was what people do when they're confronted, like once somebody discovers that you've faked your death and they confront you. And there were some people who just refused to ever admit that they had faked their death. They refused to ever say, okay, you got me. Like they were just like so deep in their new life that they're just like, no, this is always who I've been. And there was something about that that I found so fascinating of just being, you have been this other person for 20 years or something. And in the case of Stella, she eventually realizes that she's lived as white for much longer than she ever lived as black. So kind of what's the real reality? It's, you know, so I found that element of the performance between her and her daughter, the difference in the way that they are performing to be really interesting. Mm, It so was. And of course, I want to talk about the men a little bit, which you alluded to. We've got several romantic relationships in the novel, we've got Desiree and Early, we have Stella and Blake, we have Reese and Jude, all very different. And you brought really interesting dynamics in play to each one of them. And I am curious, as the character's creator, if you had a favorite couple, if, like if you had a couple where you're like, this is my favorite team to write about, this is the one I'm pulling for, or this is the couple that I find the most interesting or fascinating, the one that you like thought about the most. Yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, I definitely loved writing early in Desiree. I think that they're 
particularly to see their relationship mature from Me its, too. like first kind of puppy love. I found really, I think fun and just to see this relationship that is unconventional in a lot of ways that, you know, Desiree faces all this pressure from her mother who's just like, why don't you settle down? Why don't you settle down? But the idea that they're in a relationship that to her feels really liberating because she came from this really controlling, abusive relationship. And now she's in a relationship where she feels kind of free. So that was something that I really enjoyed writing. And I also, I loved writing Jude and Reese. I think their relationship is, is these two people who are very sort of afraid and trying to learn how to be loved and how to love somebody else. I think that watching them kind of try to navigate that was something that I had a lot of fun doing. And I don't know. I mean, I think I tell people this all the time, but I, you know, my first book had a very toxic relationship at its center. So it was nice to write this book and to have at least a couple relationships that I found very sweet and healthy. Yes. 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 Wholesome, that was a nice, yeah, yeah. That was like a really nice break just to be like, Oh, these people are nice to each other. Yes. So, yes. I love that. Cause we had so much conflict in some of the family relationships. So it was nice. Have a little respite over here with these sweet romantics. Yes. And even though their relationships were complicated, like inside of those relationships, they weren't just simple, but really, really lovely. Okay. I want to ask you a, Another question before I give you a couple of questions from the book club members. I'd like to just talk to you a little bit about Stella and Loretta. That was challenging to read. Their initial interactions were hard. And of course, Stella sees Loretta as a trigger, of course, for everything she's worked her whole life to sort of hide and shove into a drawer and pretend about her past. I'm glad that you included that even though it made us uncomfortable and frustrated. I'd love to hear you talk about why it was important to you to include that relationship in the book and for readers to see kind of both the rocky beginning, sort of the rise of it, and then like the fall of it, and what that kind of had to say to us as from you to your readers. I knew that the moment where you would kind of see Stella, like reintroduce you to Stella would be when she's trying to prevent this Black family from moving into her neighborhood. And I think originally I thought that in early drafts, she was successful at stopping them. But then as I got deeper, I realized like, no, that's not interesting. Like this, this family has to move in. Like that is the more interesting story is that, as you said, she's confronted by this family that represents, I mean, in one regard, sort of this life she could have had, you know, like she could have married this wealthy black man and ended up in this rich neighborhood who knows but you know there's also this woman who kind of reminds her of her sister in a lot of ways so it's sort of triggering in that way so once I I figured that out I knew that I wanted to spend that section of the book building up that relationship and for me the, the sadness of it is that you just realize I think how lonely Stella is like that she does not have friends who come over to play cards she doesn't have anybody that she can really tell stories about her life with she's so She walks on eggshells around everybody that she knows because she's constantly afraid of being, you know, found out. There was a reader who described her to me once as a fugitive, and she really does sort of act like a fugitive who is afraid that, like, the police are going to show up at any moment. So I knew that I wanted to explore that relationship between these two women, that fraught relationship. And, And a lot of that section for me is about Stella feeling so, at the beginning, feeling so insecure about her position within her community And when you reach the end, she sort of reaffirms her position within her community in a really ugly way. But she kind of solidifies and finally realizes that this is like the way that, you know, the whole time she feels like I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud. 
And then at the end, she does something that makes her finally feel authentic, but it's, I think, a really hollow victory because of what it costs her. So, so yeah, I mean, it was a section of the book. I get asked about that section of the book a lot. And it was a section that I found really fascinating to write, to see the interplay between these women and what that requires from Stella and what she loses in doing it. Because this is like one moment, it's one moment in the book where you see Stella kind of happy. Yeah, it's dark. Quite short lived. Yeah, yeah, it's quite short lived. <laughs> I'm glad you included it. It served the story well and provided us just a stronger and truer glimpse, I think, into Stella's heart and mind and life. The success of this book is absolutely incredible. You have to be shook by how far and wide this book has gone. I think I have seen a little something about it potentially being transformed into an HBO series. And we are here to confirm that if that is indeed true, if you can tell us anything you can tell us, we want to watch it if it's (laughs) happening. Yeah, it's in development still. So we are early on in the process. But yeah, it's exciting. I mean, obviously HBO makes incredible programming. So it's an honor to land there and to feel like you're in really good hands. And, and yeah, so it's it's early days. So I don't have anything detailed to share, but it's exciting to be in this position. And of course, I'm looking forward to, like everybody else, I'm looking forward to seeing how it turns out. This is incredible. You deserve it. Congratulations. It's literally made to be turned into a show. I mean, you have handed this on a silver platter to sort of a screenwriter. Are you going to get to have like creative contribution here? Look, I'm just asking. I'm, I'm like, what's your contract? <laughs> what, what are your terms? <laughs> well, I'm not writing, but I'm a producer. So I get to you know, read drafts and give notes and give feedback. So very behind the scenes, but yeah, but grateful. I, you know, I think HBO is correctly known as being very like artist friendly, which I think is an exciting thing to know that you will have some freedom and you will have the type of talent that they're able to attract. It's just incredible. So I'm excited to see, to see where it all goes, but we're still in very early days of, of getting the script done. Okay. This is very exciting. When you're ready, book club has some ideas about casting. So (laughs) we will send you our proposal for who we want to see. Okay. I'll forward that on to the the suits. (laughs) Absolutely. I just got back from a trip to Nashville, which is always a good thing. And on this trip, I spent time with my friends at Able. You know, I've been collaborating with them on some pieces, clothing, jewelry, handbags. It's so fun. And you guys, like, I am not a style model person, okay? I need people to tell me what to do. But I know what I like to wear. And I love working with Able because this is an ethical fashion brand that's out here doing the most. Able commits to the protection and empowerment of women in the workforce and takes steps to end generational poverty by working with women in Ethiopia, Mexico, Peru, Nashville, and beyond. They're deeply devoted to quality, both in the products they make and in the quality of life they aim to provide. So if you follow me over on socials, you know I wear so much of their stuff on total repeat. It's on literally constant rotation for me. And spring is looking so bright over with Able, you guys. They have so many adorable new pieces and updated twists on classic staples out right now. So check them out for the cause and their incredible business practices, but y'all stay for the fashion. You can save 15% site-wide with my code Jen at livefashionable.com. That's Jen, J-E-N, at livefashionable.com. 
Okay. I've got a couple of questions from book club members and then you're off to your next thing. Okay. This was from Audrey DeMarzo. She said, Britt, I half expected or even hoped that Stella and Kennedy would show up in Mallard for Adele's funeral. Did you consider a different ending? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I think that that was perhaps the most obvious way for the book to end. And it was something that I did think about, which was just gathering everybody in one space. And that was a natural space to gather everybody. But I think ultimately when I kept thinking about it, I just realized that this was a story about a fractured family and it's not a family that comes back together. You know, it's not a family that is going to be meeting for Thanksgiving. You know, it's like, this is a family that has broken in such huge, huge ways in such different directions. It was hard for me to imagine them all ending up back together in a way that felt true to the story. So I thought of a lot of different endings, but I think ultimately I wanted to end with the final scene that I end with because I wanted to look ahead. I wanted to look ahead to the next generation of the family. And I think this is a book that is so concerned with looking to the past and people being haunted by their past that I wanted at the end to look ahead and to look to the next generation and think, Maybe these people will be able to figure it out a little bit better than than the the people that came before them. Maybe they will be able to find a little hope. Maybe they will be able to find acceptance. So to me, that's kind of what that last scene was, was this moment of joy and acceptance from these two characters who represented this younger generation. So to me, I I thought it it was a hopeful ending. I have heard from readers that they did not take it that way, but I wanted to look ahead, I think, instead of being stuck in the past with these characters who are always stuck in the past. You're right. Again, in inside our community, we're split on the ending because <laughs> that is a hopeful ending. Um, the way that you wrote it was lovely and it had some life and light inside of it. And, you know, for those of us who really, really like a tidy ending, like you could have given it to us, but it wouldn't have made sense. It just wouldn't have. It just, yeah. the, the complete reestablishment of their relationship just wouldn't have made sense. It, it would have. Yeah. That would have just been at the expense of probably truth. Okay, here's a question from Heather Perry. I was intrigued by your handling of Jude and Reese's relationship. I'd love to know why you decided to make Reese trans and also why you decided to keep it so low-key. I loved this aspect, but I'm curious about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to the second part of that question, I wanted to write a love story and... I wanted to write a love story where Reese being trans was not treated as a problem that the story needed to solve. So I knew that I didn't want to write this in a way that would be sensationalized or even dramatic. It's, you know, a lot of the problems that Reese faces in the book are because he doesn't have money. It's like he can't access the healthcare he needs because he doesn't have money, which is obviously a, a huge thing for him, but that's not the story sort of creating drama around it. That's just like a horrible reality. So, you know, that, and I, and I think, you know, Reese as a character, I just, I just loved, I thought that his story was such an interesting counterpoint to Stella because, you know, he's a character who undergoes this physical transformation that brings him closer to himself and to who he really is versus Stella who doesn't change physically, but ends up becoming some completely different person on the inside. So I found his story in tension with Stella in a really interesting way. And yeah, I mean, I wanted, I knew that there is a really unfortunate and horrible history of cisgender people writing trans characters in a way that feels really exploitative. So I didn't want to write Reese in a way that felt like I was being exploitative or gawking or even sensationalizing his life. I wanted to write about 
the love story between these two people who are trying so hard to love each other, but also have their own deep seated insecurities and, and the just complexity of that relationship on its own. I love that choice. My 21 year old daughter's gay and she's always telling me that she is so looking forward to the next iteration of literature and like film and television where the LGBTQ characters, their sexuality is not the center point of their portion of the story, that they're just a human person like all the other characters who's the story is not centered on their sexuality. And so I really like that. I like that direction that you're moving. And I, I think that is the truest and loveliest way to handle a character like Reese. Anyway, we loved, we loved that couple. Shelby in a says, was it ever a thought to have Stella tell Blake about her past and her heritage? I kept waiting for him to find out and love her anyway. Yes, it was a thought. I think the ultimately, I I I think originally I was thinking that, but ultimately I found it much more interesting about her and Kennedy. So instead, like, because I I realized I don't really care if Blake knows. Like that wasn't interesting to me, but Kennedy knowing was so much more interesting to me. Of what does that secret change in the relationship between those two people versus it changing with her and Blake? So. I think some of that was my just indifference about whether Blake knew. And I found that the relationship between mother and daughter to be so much more interesting. So I wanted to, I wanted for that pressure to be there instead of with her and Blake. But yeah, there were different versions where I thought about her telling him or him finding out. And I wasn't sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know how he would have responded. I don't know that he would have left her or anything, but I think, you know, it feels very much a marriage where they just kind of paper over everything that's wrong. So it seems to me like this is a marriage where I would be like, we're not acknowledging this thing. But yeah, I I ultimately, I think, felt like the energy was better directed towards the mother and daughter because I just found the two Mm. of them more interesting. Good choice. I like it. Last question. This is from Becky McGeehane. My question is about the last sentence. Can you elaborate on begging to forget? I felt like Jude and Reese were the characters who truly lived in the truth of their lives, arguably the only main characters who didn't try to forget who they were or what had happened to them, but rather wrestled with their actual realities constantly. They were, to me as a reader, the representation of embracing the tension of life and not running from it. So the last line surprised me a little. Was this about them wanting to be free in a way they couldn't? In that time, in the lives they were living, was it about them wanting a fresh start they couldn't really have? about them wishing they could forget parts of their stories, but knowing they never would. I'd love to hear more about those last couple of sentences. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that reading of it. I think it it was some of the things that you suggested. You know, I think that these are characters who are on journeys towards accepting themselves, but there's there's still ways in which they carry their past with them. Like, I don't think that they have completely divorced from it. And, you know, that moment for me is so important because both of them are disrobing and there's been a lot of secrecy surrounding both of their bodies earlier in the book, you know, like Reese not wanting to be seen, Jude having memories of not going swimming because she doesn't want people to see her skin. So they both have these moments of disrobing in a way that's very public and requires this vulnerability. And even Reese, you know, he still has scars from his surgery. So there's a way in which both of them are perhaps you know, moving forward and moving towards acceptance, but they still are carrying the past with them even as they're moving on. So to me, it was that it's, you know, not that we all need to be in positions where we never think about our past ever, but just 
moving forward in a way that the past is not like tethering you to it and the way that these other characters are kind of tethered to it. That's how I think I thought of Jude and Reese. So I think that they're characters who are on journeys towards accepting themselves, but I still think they carry the past with them as we all do. So their desire to like step into this liberating and joyful moment while still feeling the, the past kind of tugging at the edges to me, that was something that I think is, is kind of true for the way that a lot of us are experiencing the world. It's so good. It's such a good book. I'm so delighted that you are writing in this day and age and we get to read what you write. I have one more question. We'd love to know two things that we always want to hear from our authors. What are you reading or what have you read lately that you love? However you want to pull that, like something that you'd say, this is a put on your nightstand book. And then also like, what are you working on right now? What's next? Things that I'm reading that I enjoy, the book I'm reading right now that I'm really digging is not new, but it's Look at Me by Jennifer Egan, which is about a supermodel who experiences this horrible car crash and has to get reconstructive surgery that completely changes her face. And it's really interesting. So I'm really digging that. And working on next, working on novel number three and wrestling with it, still kind of early days. It's a book about music. So it's been Fun to write in a lot of ways, more fun than The Vanishing Half. The research has been more fun at least, but also a lot more challenging than The Vanishing Half. I think it's it's a book that's requiring a lot from me to kind of figure out its structure and, and all of that. So it's challenging, but it's been fun to write a book about something like music and to- Totally. Is it current or are you going backwards? No, it's not current. It kind of stretches into the present day, but the singers are mostly active during, it starts with a 60s girl group. So yes, um, oh my gosh. So yeah, so it goes a little bit further back, but you can do a lot worse than like making playlists for yourselves and listening and reading, reading like fun tell-all books. So it's been a really fun research process. Yeah, still trying to figure it out. So it'll probably take me a minute to crack, but it's been fun. Uh I love it. What's your terrible working title or can we know? (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even know if I have a bad one for this. Yeah. One. It's probably just like music. Music. Yeah. Like cookbook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty much music. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Just yet again, I'm so delighted to talk to you, Britt, and so glad to introduce this particular book to my reading community. They are smitten kittens over it. So <laughs> you. you've like captured yet another subgroup of readers. And this book deserves every single prize and bit of attention it has received. And so I hope that you can just like revel in that, that you genuinely, because I know it was a labor, a huge lift. I can't only imagine how many revisions you went through, how much is on the cutting room floor. Being a novelist just feels like a constant broken heart, like killing all the darlings all the time. I just can't imagine it. And so it's just a masterpiece and we love it and we've loved it. And we're going to read whatever you ever write. So get that music book, like worked (laughs) into submission, figured out, (laughs) get it on the page. And then we're also, of course, super cheering you on for the HBO series that is we're so invested. Like we feel very (laughs) protective of your little project. I hope they treat it well. And I know that they will. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks.